0: justice, oppression, why work and toil, and rulership or power, all within like a chapter and a half of Ecclesiastes. So this is crazy, but this is the task before us. So we are going to go through Ecclesiastes 3, 16 to the end of chapter 4. Ecclesiastes 3.16 to the end of chapter 4. If you've not been with us, we are traveling chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book. It is one of three, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Sometimes Song of Solomon and the, and the Psalms also have uh, wisdom literature inserted into them. However, the three main books of wisdom in the Bible are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And those three books taken as a whole and taken together will give you uh, a biblical view of wise living in God's world. We are more overviewing than digging each uh, verse as we normally do when we go through uh, the New Testament. We are simply going over the chapter because to dig it as normal would take forever. And so I'm just going to jump right in to 3.16 to 18, and we're going to start. This image shows the under the sunness that Ecclesiastes speaks about over and over and over again. Under the sun is an interpretive key to the book, and it means life without God in view. Life without eternity in view, this current world, this current system, don't regard eternity or eternal reward or judgment under the sun. And we, week by week, have been going above the sun and saying, as Christians, we must not think in a secular, naturalistic framework. Rather, we must think in a spiritual God sovereign, God ruling through providence, the world framework, okay? So let's move. Moreover, I saw under the sun, so notice the phrase, he's speaking in such a way as to say that this is the way it works in this current state of frustration and futility in the Genesis 3 world. I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them. That they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Let's take 18 first. What is happening here in this text, remember the context... The previous verses from last week are all about the seasons of life that are God-ordained and God-fixed that we cannot escape. The way we said it last week is God has set up a fence for you, the exact time and place that you're born, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, all of it of God on purpose. And He has a fence for us that we cannot transcend, and it would be much better for us to rest and relax in God's sovereign providential care for you and me. That was last week. So in light of the seasons and God ordaining the seasons and ordaining where you're at right now in 2019, September 22nd, we need to say that there is a time coming, verse 17, that God is going to judge. Look at that. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. So judgment is coming. Righteousness is coming. But under the sun, what we see is a lot of injustice. A lot of things happening in the world that we can point at and say, that's not right. And when men, listen closely, when men or mankind treat each other unjustly, they are acting like beasts, not like men, or not like mankind. They are not acting in the image of God in which they were created. That's what verse 18 says. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Friends, when we treat each other unjustly, we are acting more like animals Than we are like people. Now, just a few illustrations. Now, I've had dogs my whole life, okay? And I've had male and female dogs in the same house at the same time. And you know what? When the male dog is feeling like doing something, we'll just say freaky, he just takes what he wants. Even if the other dog is biting and reaching back and trying to get him off, he's just taking it. That's very bestial. But men do the same thing, don't they? We call it rape. It's not, animals are amoral, so it's not a sin. I don't rebuke my dog and say, what are you doing? And, you know, read Romans 3 and tell him to repent. Rather, they're beasts. They don't have the same standards that we do. So why do we have standards and animals don't? Because listen, friends, we are not animals. We are not beasts. We are human beings made in God's image. And each image bearer deserves dignity beyond which you give, even yourself. And you surely don't give it to others. That being the case, there are, in the animal world, a picture of what naturalism or evolutionary worldview plays out. What do beasts do? They just eat each other. They consume each other. They take what they want from each other. And this is the natural progression of what humans would do if there was no God. That's what they should do. It's always been the strong eating the weak. It's always been lesser forms that were weak dying out and stronger forms coming to power and presence in the world. And if we human beings are but beasts, as evolution would teach, and not made in the image of God, then injustice doesn't even make sense. Justice does not make sense because we are just beasts, amoral. There is no ultimate accountability. But friends, in the Christian worldview, the Imago Day is treated with such respect, dignity, and weight that for you to even speak evil against your neighbor will be brought up on Judgment Day. Jesus himself said every idle word will be brought into account on judgment day. Now for the Christian, this is for reward and not punishment, for Jesus took our punishment in our place. However, that's weighty. Every idle word you spoke is going to come up on judgment day? Yes, that's what Jesus said. Now that's, that's pretty serious and weighty. However, if we are but beasts, throw justice, throw just injustice out the window. It doesn't matter. There is no ultimate right and wrong. And who gets to say what's right and who gets to say what's wrong if there's not a higher law which implies a higher lawgiver? If there's no God who says this is definitely right and this is definitely wrong and there is no standard of justice, how can we live justly or unjustly? You see how I'm reasoning here? okay? But the Christian worldview says that there is such a thing as what some have called cosmic justice. There is an ultimate right and wrong. And all humans instinctively adhere to it. Do you know when they adhere to it? When they are wronged. When someone lies about you, you immediately feel injustice and you rage. When someone slanders you, you immediately feel injustice and you rage. When someone steals from you or rips you off or characterizes you in a wrong way, you feel the injustice and you rage. When you hear stories of children and young teens getting stolen and forced into the sex trade industry, you feel a sense of injustice rise up within you, okay? But especially when it's aimed at you, especially when it's aimed at you, you know the difference from what is ultimately right and what is ultimately wrong. This is how Romans 1 and 2 argues. Well, here's the deal. I could talk about justice for the next four months, but we have to get through this whole section of Scripture here. So here's what I want to say about injustice. Injustice won't last forever. And God is going to bring ultimate justice one day. And let me say this to you who have experienced injustice. Do you know what your role is by God's command if you're a Christian? Your role is to forgive and your role is to not seek vengeance and to not express your rage against another person and so repay a sin for a sin, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Rather, you are to leave vengeance to the Lord. Let's look at it in Romans 12, 18 to 21. If possible, now this is after 11 weighty chapters of gospel, and Romans 12, 1 and 2 starts, in view of the gospel, in view of God's mercy, live like this. So this is a call, Romans 12, to Christians who have experienced the grace of Jesus, who have experienced the forgiveness of Jesus. If possible, so far as it depends on you, you, Christian, who've experienced the grace of God, live peaceably with all. That's your responsibility. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved, never avenge yourself. Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary. So here's what you're supposed to do instead of seeking vengeance and seeking repayment. You are supposed to, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Ancient warfare, an ancient way that uh, over the wall you would pour hot coals on those trying to uh, get up the wall to infiltrate a city. Burning coals on the head, that'll stop you from climbing the wall. Okay? So this is the way you fight, Christian. You fight by feeding the hungry who are doing wrong to you and giving drink to the thirsty who are doing wrong to you. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, good here is you doing real good to other people. In this verse, giving food, giving drink. Now, that's impossible. Unless you have the Spirit of God filling you to a degree where you actually believe that God is going to look out for me and He will take care of me and ultimately whatever this person has done wrong, either to me, they will either pay for in hell forever or Jesus will take their vengeance, wrath, and punishment for them on the cross. But justice will be served. Friends, believe this. No one's getting away with anything. No one from any age. Centuries behind us till 2019, no one gets away with even a white lie. Every idle word will be accounted for. And friends, on judgment day, the books will be open and the dead will be judged according to what was written in the books, Revelation 20, through 15. And if you are a Christian, you have received not justice, but you have received mercy and grace. Forgive as you've been forgiven. We Christians are to be the people of mercy, the people of peace, the people of forgiveness. And how can we do that when we live in such an unjust world? We have to realize that justice is coming. Or, for the Christian, it has already come. Been dealt with. Justice came. For the unbeliever, justice is coming. This is not only an encouragement, but a warning. Okay? Hell, listen, friends, I know we don't like to talk about hell. Hell is all over the Bible, it's eternal, conscious torment, and it's just. It's punishment for the very things that you've said and done. And Sin against an infinite God deserves an infinite punishment. Interestingly, in the case of David and Bathsheba, David, by his power, by his force, by his might, sends his people. They go and they get this woman that was not his wife, and he takes her, and he, he, dare I say, rapes her? Some wouldn't go that far, and they would say he committed adultery with her. But interestingly, when you look at her responsibility all through the Bible, she's never one to be blamed. It's interesting. He is every time. But regardless of what view you take on that situation, David wrote Psalm 51 when he was confronted with his sin, and he said, against you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight, God. And you're like, wait a minute. You you killed the woman's husband, and then you took her for yourself, and then you married her and covered up the whole thing and against God only, what that means, friends, is that when we sin against other people, we ultimately sin against God first, which is why Jesus Christ in the Gospels, when looking at a crippled man, could look at him and say, your sins are forgiven, and those listening to Jesus talk, outraged in their hearts said, who is this that claims they can forgive sin for God alone can forgive sin? Right. Jesus is the offended party. And Jesus then says, so you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, take up your mat and walk. And the man takes up his mat and strolls on out in front of the mall. But you realize what Jesus was saying. David and Bathsheba, Jesus is saying, that was against me. And I alone have the right to forgive that. Okay, let's move on. 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul writing to his son in the faith says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. When the just king comes, justice will be established, but know that he is going to judge those who are alive at his coming and those who are dead, he will rise for judgment raise for judgment at his coming. Ecclesiastes 19 to 22. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Okay, so in in the last text that we looked at, he said that men are the same as beasts. And he was not saying that we are animals. Rather, he was saying Men act like beasts, and in addition, now he's going to say, men have the same fate as beasts, if you only look from the view of under the sun. So let's look at it. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, the beasts, so dies the other, the man, the woman. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage Over the beasts, for all is vanity, which in Hebrew means vapor, breath, wind. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Is this not uh, Genesis 3.19? This is the curse on man after we sinned against God. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken... For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so what's being said here about the beasts is they have some kind of life in them. You can't deny that. Even, even your pets have personality. I mean, some pets are really sweet and cuddly and nice, and other pets are vicious, and they want to bite even their owners. And you're like, all right, there's a different kind of life in you and in you, right? Now, do we go so far as to say that's an eternal soul? I don't think so. I don't think so. Does that mean there won't be pets in heaven? Well, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But what is being said here by Solomon in Ecclesiastes is this, that the breath or the life inside of humans and beasts will do the same thing. It will leave them, and both will return to the ground. I just buried my grandmother. Well, our family buried my grandmother this past week. I did the funeral. It was a great privilege. It was a great funeral. A ton of unbelievers heard the gospel, and I rejoiced that I got to do the funeral. And we left her in the chapel at the cemetery, and the workers were standing around. And as I pulled out, I looked in the little shed, and there's the big diggers, and there's the little diggers, and there's the shovels, and there's the concrete slabs that the coffin goes in that they close, and they lower them in. And eventually, dust to dust. Grandma was 90 years old. I mean, even Moses says that's incredible. Psalm 90, he says, by strength, you'll make it to 80. I mean, she outlived Moses' prediction 10 years. It's amazing. She knew Jesus. She's in heaven. But her life has left her. And in the same week, my, my dog of 12 years died. Okay? And I'm not trying to get your pity. This is just illustration, okay? And the life left my dog. And both have become... What they originally were, dust, earth, the material that the ground is made from. And friends, so you are going, and so I am going. But we have hope, don't we, as Christians? We have hope that this isn't all there is, that all is not lost when this life or breath leaves us, okay? Let's read 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So he, he looks at how animals and people have the same fate, they land in the ground or they return back to the dust from which they came, and he says. In conclusion, enjoy the work that God has given you to do because remember the context. He has put a fence around your life and you are bound to his sovereign providence and the best thing you can do in this short existence that you have life in your body is enjoy the life that God has given you and enjoy the work that he's given you to do because soon the life he's given you is going to leave just like all the beast's. So why be miserable with the short 80, 90, if a miracle happens, why be miserable all your years? That's what he's arguing. Now, this verse 21 is uh, an interesting question because it's like, do do animals rise and do people rise? and, And it's interesting. Well, here's what I think is more being said here, because this is consistent with the rest of the scripture. Psalm 104, 27 to 30. These all look to you. And he just went through a bunch of different animals that look to, their, to, to God for food. You give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, there it is, they die and return To their dust. When you send forth your spirit, look at the capital S, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground, the dust. This is uh, pointing to gods not only being able to take life, but create it. All life is not random, it's not by evolution. Each life, whether animal or person, is by God's doing. And this psalm says he even sustains the life of all living things. And he gets to choose when that life departs. And when he decides to send new life into the animal world or into the people world, it's his doing. It's his doing. Now that's hard to believe for some of you. But this is what the Bible teaches. God is the giver of life, and he is also the one who has the right to take life. Job 34, this is Elihu. This is the young man who was really angry at Job's three friends and angry at Job's response. And so he just goes off. And he speaks a truth here. He says, of a truth... God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. That speaks to our former point. Who gave him charge over the earth? Now he's asking a question about God. Who is over God to give him charge over the earth? Romans would say it like this. Who has been his counselor? Who has given uh, God some advice to follow? And who laid on him the whole world? no one. If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Man, that is a sweeping statement of your mortality, your creatureliness, and God's sovereign power over every breath that you take. If God decided, if he wanted to, he could say, all breath of life, and all of us, Man, bird, fish kind of breathe water, so we'll leave them out. <laughs> we, we would all return to dust. Friends, realize your creatureliness. Realize that you are dust. And realize that God is the one controlling the very breath in your lungs. Didn't we just sing that last week? Or a few weeks ago? I can't remember. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. Randy Alcorn, uh, who wrote a little book called Heaven, uh, it's not little actually, it's pretty thick, um, I, I highly, highly recommend this book. If, if Ecclesiastes is depressing you, you should get Heaven as a supplement, okay? For the next several weeks here, you should get Heaven as a, as a complementary text, either on audio or in print form, and go through it as you go through Ecclesiastes, And what Randy does throughout the book of heaven is he argues for a physical, real, tangible, material new earth that the Bible calls heaven. And he argues in it for recreation and food and enjoyment and technology and pets even. And so here's a little interesting section from that book. Animals aren't nearly as valuable as people, but God is their maker and has touched many lives through them. You know that there's such thing as therapy dogs, right? I think the people on airplanes overuse them, but that's another story. It would be simple for him to recreate a pet in heaven if he wants to. He's the giver of all good gifts, It's James 1:17, not the taker of them. If it would please us to have a pet restored to the new earth, that may be sufficient reason. Again, he's saying maybe. He's not saying this is definitely going to happen. In her excellent book, Holiness in Hidden Places, Joni Erikson Tada says, If God brings our pets back to life, it wouldn't surprise me. It would be just like Him. It would be totally in keeping with His generous character. Exorbitant. Excessive extravagant in grace after grace, of all the dazzling discoveries and ecstatic pleasures heaven will hold for us, the potential of seeing, I'm assuming her dog's name was Scrappy, Scrappy would be purely whimsy, utterly, joyfully, surprisingly superfluous, meaning not that much weight. Heaven is going to be a place that will reflect, refract and reflect as, in as many ways as possible the goodness of joy of our great God who delights in lavishing love on his children. And as I said last week, R.C. Sproul says he thinks God is going to, in some sense, resurrect pets for believers, not for the pet's sake, but for the sake of the owners. Okay? I, I find that helpful and interesting. Let's move on. Ecclesiastes 4, 1-3, to 3, let's talk oppression. Again, I saw the oppressed, oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. In the realm of oppression. But better than both, the dead or alive, is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Notice the under the sun. This is without God in view. This is without having a God who gives a moral law. This is without a reckoning With your creator on judgment day, what do people do? They oppress other people for their advantage. They take and they cause harm for their good and they don't care what it does to the person whom they are oppressing. And the only way you can do that without fear and without pretense is if you don't think you're going to give an account for your oppression. It's the only way you can get away with that. Now, I want to look at this very quickly in uh, a, an Exodus kind of way, okay? Because Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, I think, and he was Jewish, and he remembers and knows probably by memory the Exodus story. And you remember the Exodus story. The Exodus story is that Joseph saved all the ethnic Jews, and they were allowed to live in Egypt in the land of Goshen, and a new pharaoh arose that forgot Joseph's help of the Egyptians. And he was so, this new pharaoh, was so afraid of the multitude of the Jews that he began to oppress them. And he began to cause them to work for him, all of them, and do his bidding. So let's look at that. Exodus 1, 11 to 14. Therefore, they set, this is the Egyptians, set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. It's just like the persecuted church, interestingly. The more that governments seek to squash Christianity and oppress Christians and oppress the gospel, the more it just spreads and is pervasive. This is God's doing. The more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel because they're growing so large. So they ruthlessly, note that, made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly, note that, made them work as slaves. Now this is God responding to this oppression and the cries of his people, and he raises up Moses to deliver the people. You remember the story. Well, this is the burning bush. But this shows you God's attitude towards the oppression of his people by the Egyptians. Exodus 3, 7-8. to 8. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of of the Egyptians. Now, I believe Solomon has this in mind, but remember, Solomon is speaking from the view of there is no ultimate deliverer, and so it's hopeless. The oppressed have no hope. There is no vengeance on the oppressor. There is no ultimate accounting. There is no hell to pay under the sun. And if that's the case, what a terrible, terrible, terrible reality we find ourselves in. Now, because we're in 2019, and because oppression is in the air, and because it's not only in elite academia, and it's not only in politics, it's also in the church, I am going to quote a recent article uh, from the Gospel Coalition that I think we must reckon with. Okay, so I'm just taking a little paragraph from it, and then I'm going to give some commentary, and we're going to move on. This is Neil Savin. Senvi, sorry, it's called the incompatibility of critical theory in Christianity. Critical theory has many different outworkings, many, but you could summarize them all by critical theory. Modern critical theory views reality through the lens of power. Each individual is seen either as oppressed or as an oppressor, depending on their race, class, gender, sexuality, and a number of other categories. And the categories just keep widening. It's amazing. Like, there's more every day. Oppressed groups are subjugated, not by physical force or even overt discrimination, but through the exercise of hegemonic power, which means dominant political or cultural influence. He says it means the ability, or the ability of dominant groups to impose their norms, values, and expectations on society as a whole, relegating other groups to subordinate positions. Now now that's critical theory, and you could just do some Googling and find its roots, and it's not good. And here's what I want to say about it, okay? It's not biblical. This is not the oppression that we're talking about in Ecclesiastes, and this is not the oppression that we're talking about in Exodus, okay? We believe in a biblical view of oppression, and we believe in a biblical view of humanity. So here's what I want to say about that. The Bible has another view to offer than just oppressor and oppressed. If those are the only categories you see the world through, you do not have a biblical worldview. Let me say that again. If you see the world through the lens of the oppressed and the oppressor, Only you do not have a biblical worldview. The Bible is far more nuanced, far more uh, specific, and far more deeper than that. The Bible has another view to offer. I'll use just three that can make up a Christian worldview as opposed to this view of critical theory. Number one, we are made in God's image. We are made in God's image which gives equality, worth, dignity, and value to all people regardless of their ethnicity, of their capacities, of their social status, of how much money they have, of what kind of car they drive, etc. Every single person you meet has dignity, value, and worth as much as every other human being that you meet or see. Period. Period. Okay? The oppressed and the oppressor narrative does not take the Imago day into view. And so for that reason alone, we should throw it out. But the Bible says, no, every single person has worth, dignity, and value. Value. Eternal value. C.S. Lewis says it like this in the Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian. He says, you come from the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, said Aslan. Aslan is um, p- pictured as Christ. You come from the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, said Aslan, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. What that means is the lowest of the low can be lifted up because of the Imago Day, and the highest of the high in power should be brought low because of the way that we've thrown away the Imago Day." Number two, the Bible sees the categories not of oppressor and oppressed, but of in Christ and in Adam. That's the two categories, the major ones. So if the Bible said, how are people viewed? Yes, all in the Imago day. But if we want to make two categories, what are they? In Christ, in Adam. What does that mean? That means you are characterized by two individuals, and both were at one time... Perfect. And I say at one time because Adam fell. Jesus maintained his perfection, which is why he is the second Adam. The first Adam failed and plunged the whole human race into ruin and chaos and sin and injustice and oppression. That's in Adam. But Jesus, coming as the second Adam, lived perfectly and loved his neighbor as himself. And loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you, friend, tonight, me, we're either in Adam, and everything that defines Adam defines us, including his sin and guilt and shame, or you're in Christ. And everything about Christ defines you. His righteousness, his status with God the Father, his love that he accomplished for us, loving God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his loving neighbor as himself, given to you as a gift because you're in Christ. Those are the two categories. Our desire as Eternal City Church is to see you move out of Satan, sin, and death, Adam, in Adam, and move into Christ and have Jesus be your definition of what it is to be a human being. That's what it is to be in Christ. And Eddie and I have said this on many, many, many occasions that your identity in Jesus is the highest identity that you have. It transcends Race, it transcends victimhood, it transcends your economic status, it transcends your cultural position, it transcends your intellect and your IQ, it transcends everything else. And friends, if your identity in Christ, if you're in Him, moves down the identity scale, that's when oppression and injustice starts to happen. We as Christians must see our identity primarily as in Jesus and friends. That is a powerful, unifying force. Because you will treat others with the same dignity, love, and respect as you want to be treated. Because you will see them, if they're not in Christ, as in the Imago day, But if they are in Christ, they are the same as you. The same as you. Number three. We should see... That Satan and sin are the ultimate oppressors. Satan and sin are the ultimate oppressors. Now, that being said, we are oppressed by them willingly. You say, what? In John chapter 8, Jesus speaking to a hostile crowd. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do his will. You want it. In Romans 5 and 6, we are slaves to sin, but our slavery to sin is a willing slavery because we desire sins, promises, or temptations, or salvations, and so we willingly give ourselves over, and friends, the great liberator is Jesus Christ who slays Satan, sin, and death in our place, and he is our great hero or liberator. And friends, if we're in Christ, he is who defines us. He's who defines us. And we should begin to think in those categories if we think otherwise. Now, a hard truth. Man, and I got so little time. This is terrible. Jeremiah 27, 5 to 7. I'm bringing this text in for one reason. This is a hard, hard truth that Jeremiah is going to lay on us. Are you ready for it? It's that God is sovereign over Egyptian type oppression. And he did it to his people more than in Egypt. He did it to them with Nebuchadnezzar as a judgment. You ready? It is I This is God speaking through Jeremiah. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth. And I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now, I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. In other words, then I'm going to judge him. Then, after God judges him, then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. Now, this is just like God saying, I'm bringing Assyria to judge my people. Assyria is the rod of my anger. And then, right after he says it, he says, And then I'm going to judge Assyria for oppressing people because he said, By my power and might have I done this. Now, friends, this is unthinkable to us. We're like, How does this work? Here's how it works. God sees the end from the beginning, and only God knows how to bring right, justice, and judgment to people both now and into eternity. We have skewed views of how justice works and how it shouldn't work. And so, though a secular worldview might say it like this karma, man, no one gets away with anything, or you might hear it said like this you reap what you sow. But Galatians tells us that God is not mocked. We will reap what we sow. And so, you know, we could talk about this for the rest of our time here. But the deal is, God is the one who sovereignly brings nations to power. And he sovereignly brings other nations under their power. And then he judges even those nations who were oppressing. And he does it over and over and over throughout history. And God knows how to judge each person and nation. Now, we could show texts like this all night. This isn't the only place, but we have to finish this. So, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. So now he's saying the main motivation for people to work hard is to keep up with the Joneses, not Eddie. (laughs) To keep up with the Joneses. I envy you, and so I'm going to work hard so I can get a nicer than you. A nicer house, a nicer spouse, perhaps, you know? I'm going to get a nicer than you. It's envy, it's jealousy. This is the motive of many people to accomplish and to achieve and to move out into the world with ambition. He says, all toil, all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Now, he's, he's making huge statements. That's not true of everybody, but this is what he's seeing. This also is vanity, breath, wind, vapor, and striving after wind. You trying to catch wind. There it goes. you, You run after it. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. That's proverbial. What that means is this. He's contrasting two types of people. One person is very ambitious, and they are working hard, and they are motivated by envy and jealousy of others. The second here, who is the fool, refuses to work hands folded, sitting on the couch. And the reference here to eat his own flesh means self-destruction. Self-destruction. So both the hard worker is motivated by sin, and both the fool who refuses to work is also motivated by laziness, sluggardliness, and sin, and it will destroy him, as envy will destroy those who are motivated by it. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. That is a a cryptic saying, and what it means is this. It's better for you to do the work God's given you to do with joy and satisfaction and not being motivated by envy, but being motivated to do what God has given you to do for His glory and for the good of others. That's better for you than to strive after wind with two hands full of toil. And remember, toil from earlier chapters is restless labor minus God's involvement. And God gives to His beloved sleep, rest, satisfaction, joy in work, a sense of accomplishment. Why? Because we're not doing what we do out of envy or jealousy, or to make a name for ourselves. Rather, we are serving God by serving neighbor in whatever we do, and we can be satisfied for what God has given us to do. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other. So this is either a lonely person, or this is a person who works so hard that it's as if they have no one else. This is work is more important than my wife, or my husband, or my kids, or my friends, or my church, and all I do is work. Because that's important in life. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, all his projects, all his accomplishments. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. Because when you work to the bone like that, to where you got no time for anyone, you're going to accumulate some wealth. No doubt. So that he never asks. So Solomon's saying here, this never comes to mind to this type of person. For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. In other words, you never get to enjoy the fruit of your labor with anyone else. It's just you and you and you in your own little kingdom. And then when you die, remember the the parable of the man who was rich and built bigger barns to keep all this stuff? He says, what shall I do with all this stuff? He says, I know, I'll build bigger barns to house all my stuff. And then God says through Jesus, you fool, your life will be required of you today. And then who will get all that you worked for? This is foolishness. This is an unhappy business. (laughs) Two are better than one because they have a good reward on their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and is not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is usually given at weddings. It was used uh, in a wedding I did. Uh, They're here. Uh, This is not primarily... And I said this at their wedding. This is not primarily about marriage, okay? Because it's in the context of work, right? Just followed the the verses on toil. What this is saying is, remember, the man who works alone by himself, all that he can get. This is a plea, an argument, a poem for you. It's better for you if you're in community. And, And it's just simple truths. If one falls, one can lift him up. But if you're alone when you fall, you're done. If you don't have a cell phone, of course or if you're out of range. If two lie together, not in a sexual way, but probably in a ancient way where you're outside and it's cold and you don't have a heater and you don't have fire and, well, body heat can keep each other together. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone if they're attacked, two will withstand him. And then if two are better than one, then guess what? Three is better than two. That's what it's saying. Better was a poor and wise youth. This is it. We're done. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Now he's contrasting two people. A poor and wise young person and an old and foolish king who's been in power and refuses to listen to advisors. That's verse 13. 14. For he, this is the youth, went from prison to the throne though in his own kingdom he had been poor, or been born poor. I saw that all the living who move about under the sun, along with that second, or you could say that young person, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. Here's what's being said here. What's being said is whether you're a wise and young king who takes advice and does good for people, or if you're a foolish king who will not take advice and does not rule well, you're both going to be forgotten. You're both going to be forgotten. And the one who is wise and does good for the people can immediately be followed by someone who will undo everything. It's exactly what happened to Solomon. His son got into power, didn't listen to the advisors, listened to the youth that were just like him, and said, I'm going to make the work harder on the people. And they rebelled and the kingdom split and and was not reunited again. And so what he's saying here is power is not ultimately the answer because the next in power can undo everything the one who just had power did. So let's finish with this, friends. We talked about justice, oppression, work and toil, and wise rulership. These all find their fulfillment in Christ, all of them. Jesus fulfills all these major themes of these texts. Jesus is on the side of the oppressed, listen, and he will judge the oppressors. It's coming. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We must remember that. Jesus is the judge. Number two, justice is in Jesus' hands. He is the just judge of all the earth. And he is going to bring to account every injustice and he's going to bring to account every ill motive. No one's getting away with anything. And the injustices that you have done to others, Now remember, what category are we talking about? When you're sinned against, you immediately feel injustice rise up, but yet you do the same things to others. That's what Romans 2 teaches you. You who condemn another, condemn yourself because you do the very same things. So either Jesus is going to serve justice in your place, or justice will be served by the sentencing of Jesus. And that's going to look like eternal conscious torment that will be, listen, the most just sentence that was ever given. You want justice? Jesus is going to take into account every cultural position, all the background, your parents, what led up to your experiences, how much intellect you had, how much opportunity you had, and even what it would have been like under different circumstances. All that will be given to you on judgment day if you will be sentenced. Perfect justice. In fact, I can go so far as to say this. There will not be a more perfect justice and a sentence than when Jesus condemns people to hell. It will be 100% justice, all things considered. So we don't have to take vengeance into our own hands, do we? We can leave that to Jesus or plead that they would go to the king who took justice in their place. Number three, work and toil. Friends, Jesus Christ redeems our work. If we will work for him as the ultimate boss... And whatever we do, do heartily as to him and not unto men, it's all worthwhile and eternally significant. And we will receive a judgment that is not for condemnation but for reward. Christians look forward to judgment day because all of our toil will be put before Jesus and he will say prayerfully, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Well done. That's what I'm living for, friends. I hope you're living for that. I hope you're not living for all I can get because time is short because friends, eternity is forever and you want your reward to reflect what you did for him in this world. And lastly, power or wise rulership. You realize Psalm 2 and many passages in the Old Testament like Isaiah 9 say that Jesus is going to rule the new earth with justice and equity and to the end of his rule, there is none. And so for those of us who long for a more just society, friends, it's coming. It's coming. We we don't have to wait long. Sin will be eradicated. The curse will be eradicated. Why? Because the king, who is the just judge, took justice on the cross. And he redeems even the broken universe. He will come back to extract the curse The futility, as Romans 8 calls it. And so we have great hope. Under the sun, no hope. But if we can transcend the sun and see that King Jesus has bought for us future glory, then everything matters. And even the ugly that we see on the news and on social media, and we experience, we know that no one is getting away with anything. And if they are Christians who do these things, God will deal with them. It's called discipline. It's Hebrews 12. He will grow and transform those who are his. He is committed to it. And so let's remember now that Jesus bought for us justice. He took it on the cross so that we don't have to face it on judgment day. He bought for us future glory with no oppression. It's coming very shortly. He bought for us the redemption of our work on this earth, and He bought for us a future glory where He will rule the entire universe. This is coming for all of us. The centerpiece is the cross of human history. Jesus accomplished all this. God the Father accomplished all this through the cross, and he's redeeming a people, and he's calling a people to himself through the cross. And the question is, have you come to the cross? Have you come to the king yet to bow the knee and say, your will be done, and will you forgive me for the life I've lived of not only living like you don't exist, but living like I am God, and sinning against other people, and sinning ultimately against you. Maybe you could do that today by coming and remembering Jesus' body broken and bloodshed so that you might have forgiveness of sins and life eternal.